Heavenly Father, we thank you for those truths that we were just singing, that we do have an eternal hope because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And we look forward to that day uh, for those of us who have trusted in him where we can look into his face. So Lord, we ask that you would, through your word tonight, encourage us, draw us closer to you. And as Emily said, we pray that you would show us something new about yourself from your word. Ask Lord for myself that as I preach your word tonight, that it would not be my ideas, but that you would uh, speak through your word clearly to us tonight. Send your spirit to apply the word as it's preached to our hearts, to my heart so that we might better know the riches that we have in Christ. For those here tonight who do not yet know Jesus, Lord, I ask that you would open their eyes, open their hearts to uh, the glorious good news that is your gospel. For those here tonight who already know it, already are trusting in Jesus, I, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to not overlook just how wonderful the good news of the gospel really is. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see you guys. My name is Madison. Uh, I'm the director of sending here at Redeemer. And if you don't know what that is, I'll, I'll tell you in just a moment. But a little bit about me first, if you don't know me. Uh, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, um, served as a goer in East Asia, uh, where I actually met my wife. And so last time I was here, about uh, five months ago or so, my wife was super pregnant, two weeks away from her due date, praying she didn't like go into labor uh, mid-sermon. And that is the results of, uh, of that process there. That's our son, Ming Lee. That's him in his Halloween costume, which, I mean, come on, this is an objectively cute baby, right? I mean... <laughs> just like legitimately. Um, and I was wearing a mask there. This is just this, this past Halloween because I had strep like a week ago. So please pray for my throat over these next few minutes uh, that I wouldn't lose my voice halfway through the sermon. Um, yeah, his name, Ming Li, means understanding truth. So our greatest prayer for our child would be that he would understand the truth and then help others to know that as well. Um, but as I said, my job here is director of sending, which means I have the incredible privilege of helping people like you uh, get a glimpse of God's heart for the nations in all of scripture and then invite you to join God in what he's doing around the world to reach unreached peoples. And see, here at Redeemer, missions is not just like one of many departments or something we do for like a week or two, a year. But our identity as a church is a gospel-centered, missional family of disciples making disciples. So making disciples is part of who we are as a church. And we don't want to do that just here in Lubbock, but especially among those peoples and places where Jesus' name is not known, where there are no disciples. So I want to help you uh, even tonight and as I get to know all of you, recognize your identity as someone created by God to know him and make him known. So we're all called to take part in this. The question is just how? 
And my job is to help people like you uh, figure out what your role is in this big picture of what God is doing in the world. So if we've never talked before, I would love to talk to you afterwards, hear your story um, and see how we can plug you in because we have a lot of exciting stuff coming up. Shameless plug right now. Uh, We have tons of short-term trips coming up. So spring break, summer, tons of awesome opportunities. So talk to me later. I'd love to uh, let you know about those. But Tonight, we're gonna continue our series in James. And you might be wondering, like how is the missions guy gonna somehow twist this section of James to be like a missions sermon, right? But I don't have to do that because the reality is that all of scripture is revealed out of God's mission in the world of glorifying himself by drawing people from all nations to worship him. It's also revealed for mission. So scripture is designed to form a people set apart for God's mission in the world. So the missions verses are not just like the great commission in Matthew 28 or some other verse you heard preached in like some really hype mission sermon. But James, this book is actually intended by God to form us into a people on mission, even though it's not an obvious missions book. So all of scripture is designed to help us become the kind of people who live for God's purposes in our lives. And as Justin was telling you guys last week, it's designed to form us into whole people, people who live for God's purpose. And that purpose ultimately is to glorify God by seeing people from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping around his throne. So with that said, let's get ready to just jump into this big chunk of James. So if you haven't turned there already, you can turn to James 4 in your Bibles, um, and we'll break it down into into sections here, and the verses will be up on the screen in in just a second. But as you turn there, I want to tell you guys a story I read recently, and it was written by the former CFO of Microsoft North America. Now, this guy was living the kind of lifestyle some of you here tonight might be putting your hope in. He was just about at the top of the corporate food chain with the kind of home and income and power and respect that so many people fight their whole lives to get. Yet one day, this guy was in the ER hearing the doctor say, there is a good chance you'll be dead this time tomorrow. Now he discovered he had a massive bilateral pulmonary embolism. And if you're like me and know nothing about medical terms and that means nothing to you, uh, that means he had massive blood clots in the arteries of his lungs. The doctors weren't even sure that he would survive the treatment that he needed to save his life. But over the next five days, the doctors saved him and in so doing changed his perspective on everything. Reflecting on that time, he wrote, As I lay there in the ICU bed, holding my wife's hand, I realized more than ever how fragile and short life is and how little money and material things really matter. See, when you're facing down death, things like your bank balance start to look really insignificant. This guy realized something that this almost 2000 year old letter by James teaches so clearly, and that's that weighty, eternal matters put everything else into perspective. We're gonna see tonight how recognizing God's current and coming kingdom reign transforms how we live. And in recent weeks, Brandon has told you guys about this already not yet kingdom reality that we are living in today. 
And James points to these big ideas of the resurrected Jesus reigning as king over all currently and preparing to return as the solution to our problems. It's the solution to our anxieties created by our attempts to control the future, our disappointments created by our attempts to center our existence on building comfortable lives and our despair in the face of suffering. We all experience this kind of anxiety and disappointment and despair, but James's solution is to look to who God is. So if you're a note taker, I'm gonna lay out where we're going tonight. We're gonna see that because of God's current and coming kingdom reign, we should live as people submitted to God's rule over our very lives, our finances, and our suffering. So we're gonna break this big section into chunks. First, we're gonna read James 4, 13 through 17. James 4, 13 through 17. It says this, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So again, in this first section, we'll see that because of God's current and coming kingdom reign, we should live as people submitted to God's rule over our very lives. Now, James begins this section with a sobering wake-up call saying, come now. He's saying, listen up, all you people who make plans about the future without considering God. Now, who's he directing this to? He's directing it to all of us here today. Everyone, myself included, has been guilty of this, maybe even today. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a planner, right? I have a plan for tomorrow, next week, next year. Even if you're not like me, you certainly planned today or else you wouldn't be here. So there's nothing inherently wrong with planning in fact, scripture elsewhere calls us to make plans for the future. So James isn't saying that you should be like a free spirit and live without any clue what you'll do today or tomorrow. No, James is calling out our tendency to make plans while forgetting our place in the universe. The reality is, is that we're not in control of tomorrow. Look back at verse 14. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We can make plans, but we must hold them with open hands. When we fall into the trap of trying to exercise control, it only leads to greater anxiety and frustration. He's saying, how can you pretend to know what will happen tomorrow when you can't even control if you're alive tomorrow? He points out that we're like a mist, a vapor, a puff of smoke that is here one moment and then gone the next. No amount of planning can make us sovereign over our lives. God alone is on the throne and James calls it arrogance to make plans while pretending otherwise. 
Instead, James tells us that we should live in constant recognition that it is God who is in control of our tomorrows. It is God who determines when the mist of our lives will appear or when it'll vanish. Look back at verse 15. James says, we should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, hear me, this doesn't mean that we always have to say Lord willing every time after we say something about the future, right? Rather, it means we should always recognize that our plans, even the breath in our lungs and the blood coursing through our veins is all in the hands of the God of the universe who controls everything according to his good purposes. This is honestly a hard lesson to learn. And it's one that I had to learn myself just last year. So as I mentioned before, I served in East Asia and I poured myself out to learn that language and culture as best as I possibly could because I did not wanna create unnecessary barriers to the gospel. But this wasn't just any language. Uh, This language is thought by some to be the hardest or one of the hardest languages in the world for English speakers to learn. So I spent at least 60 hours a week studying it. These were brutal, headache-inducing hours. And my plan was to go above and beyond in studying that language and culture so that I could have a lifetime of fruitful ministry among these people. That was my plan. My plan. You might see where I'm going with this. Things didn't go according to my plan. I was the one saying, today or tomorrow, I will go into that country and spend years there and make disciples, yet I didn't know what tomorrow would bring. So just last year, uh, I was told that due to a series of security incidents, my wife and I would not be able to return to that country. So at least for the foreseeable future, my wife and I will not be able to live and serve there. And my wife can't even see her family without safety concerns. You have to understand this was my entire life plan being crushed right before my eyes. My entire life trajectory, decades of plans shattered. It was, it was truly a punch to the gut, but it was also a glimpse of God's mercy. You see, it was a reminder that I need to hold my plans with open hands. Now, once again, I must humbly submit to God's rule over my life. Think about how you're living today. Are you living under the false belief that you are in control over your life? Who's the one sitting on the throne deciding your future? If you're not a follower of Jesus here today, first, I wanna say I'm so glad you're here. And I want you to hear that God is not some harsh schoolmaster in the sky waiting to slap your hand when you misbehave. No, God is the loving father who is calling you to recognize that you need his help. And so simply call out to him. God's not trying to crush your plans just to make you feel bad. Just look at my experience a little over a year ago. He changed my plans because he had a much better purpose. He wanted to remind me what I truly need is not a well-outlined plan for the future. What I need is him. See, what we all need tonight, all of us, whether follower of Jesus or not, is not a perfect set of one, five, and 10-year plans. We need a humble reliance on Jesus. 
living a life submitted to his lordship over all things may seem scary at first, but living otherwise is to forget who you really are. It's to forget that you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So whether you're a follower of Jesus or not right now, I want to invite you to join me in seeking the God who alone has a perfect plan and invites us into it. He's inviting you to stop pretending you have it all together and instead simply come to him who alone controls the future. This God who controls the future also loves us so deeply that he took on flesh, lived a perfect life and died for our sin in our place and rose from the grave that we might be able to turn from our sin of trying to be the masters of our own lives. And now he invites us to be reconciled with him just by trusting in Jesus. Simply resting in God's control of our lives also frees us up to live for God and his mission in the world. People who hold plans lightly are most useful in God's kingdom. Knowing that God controls our future allows us to be freed up to follow him wherever he leads, even if that means giving up the comforts and familiarity of home to make disciples amongst unreached peoples. So can, can you see how even James is forming us for God's mission? So first, we've seen that because of God's current and coming kingdom reign, we should live as people submitted to God's rule over our very lives. Second, we're gonna see that because of God's current and coming kingdom reign, we should live as people submitted to God's rule over our finances. So we're gonna see that in our next section, James 5, verses one through six. James 5, verses one through six says this. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on, on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. In this next section, James turns to call out the rich. And he opens with the same words as our last section saying, listen up, you rich people. He gets right to the point on this one, calling the rich to weep and howl because of coming judgment. And why are these miseries coming upon the rich? Well, the following verses make it very clear, right? They're going to face condemnation because they have misused their wealth. The riches that they have hoarded up for themselves will decay, providing evidence against them in the day of judgment. And the workers they abused and defrauded will likewise bear witness against them before the Lord. James then uses some brutal language in verse five. He calls out the rich for living in this life with excessive sinful luxury and self-indulgence. They may think that they're just enjoying themselves, but James says they're like cattle being fattened up for the slaughter. They're just incurring ever greater guilt for the day of judgment. 
They're guilty of such great oppression and abuse that they have in effect murdered the righteous. The practical outcome of the actions of the rich to hoard wealth and to misuse the poor is that they are killing them with the poor unable to resist their oppressors. See the framework behind all of these warnings is the reality that we are in the last days. See, in the mind of James and the authors of the Bible, the last days are just this period between Jesus's resurrection and ascension and his return. So we're in the last days right now and have been for almost 2000 years. James is pointing to the reality that Jesus could return in judgment at any moment. So we should be leaving, leading lives of faith-fueled obedience today. Well, you might be sitting here thinking, well, I'm glad this section has nothing to do with me. I'm definitely not rich. I can barely afford Chipotle, right? But by global standards, we are incredibly rich. 85% of the world population lives on less than $30 a day. In other words, 85% of the world lives on less than one year of undergrad tuition at tech. So relatively speaking, we have an abundance of resources. Most of us in this room have been given incredible opportunities to get an education, to have access to clean running water, reliable power, internet, indoor plumbing, and so much more. But we take all of this for granted. And in reality, we might not be that far off from the rich that James calls out. So you might be wondering, what's the solution? Should I just feel guilty for all the blessings that I didn't even choose to get? No, please do not hear me saying that at all. The solution is to live in light of eternity. We should recognize that we are indeed in the last days and leverage our lives and our blessings accordingly. See, God has blessed you to be a blessing. This has always been God's way of dealing with his people. He blessed Abraham to be a blessing to all nations. And he later blessed the nation of Israel so that they would be, in turn bless the many nations that surrounded them. He has blessed the church and you individually so that you would be the light of the world, the city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Can you again see how this is intended to form us into people on God's mission in the world? We are to flee the temptation of fattening ourselves up on God's abundant blessings while billions of people starve from a lack of truth, having never even heard the name of Jesus. We're called to leverage our literal wealth along with the wealth of our gifts and our passions and our abilities for the purpose of God's kingdom among all peoples. I've seen some of our goers sent out here from Redeemer do just that. Recently, I was talking with two of our goers who are headed to the Middle East and they both were engineers with the potential to make a lot of money and live very comfortably here in America. Yet these two engineers counted Jesus as worth putting aside lucrative careers and financial stability. Instead of storing up their riches for themselves, they chose to leverage their lives to see God glorified among the roughly 3.2 billion people who live among unreached peoples and do not have access to the gospel unless someone goes to them. I've seen other people glorify God just as much by truly living out their role as senders. 
I know multiple families in this church who have chosen to ask, how much of my money should I keep? Rather than the common question, which is, what is the minimum amount I can give? But they're not only using their finances to support goers. I know of one church member who has business skills who used those skills to help a goer develop a sustainable business so that she could stay in a difficult country and serve hard to reach people. These senders are deeply invested in our goers financially, spiritually, and emotionally as they hold the proverbial rope for those who go down into the hard places to rescue lost people. So the call is not for all of us to quit our jobs and go to the Middle East to make disciples. But God's word does teach us that those who live for themselves in order to create luxurious and self-indulgent lifestyles will face judgment. Regardless of our particular role as a sender or as a goer, God wants each of us to first and foremost know him intimately and then leverage the blessings he has given us so that others would know him as well. So thus far, we've seen that because of God's current and coming kingdom reign, we should live as people submitted to God's rule over our very lives and our finances. But this kind of life lived for God's glory isn't easy. Indeed, it can and usually does lead to suffering, which leads us to our final point. So finally, we're gonna see that because of God's current and coming kingdom reign, we should live as people submitted to God's rule over our suffering. We're gonna see this in this last section, chapter five, verses seven through 12. It says this, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another brothers so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. James now turns to calling his readers and us to patience. Like the other sections, he roots this call firmly in eternal realities. Specifically, in this last section, James links his exhortation to the second coming of Jesus. In fact, all of the first three voices, verses point directly to the coming of the Lord. See, for James, the ability to persevere in the face of suffering is not a matter of like simply grinning and bearing it or pretending the suffering isn't real. I could preach an entire sermon on this, so I, I know I can't do justice to the biblical view of suffering in the few minutes we have left, but suffice it to say, scripture doesn't tell us to pretend that suffering isn't happening. Books like Job and Psalms and Lamentations are full of people pouring out their very real pain and emotions while suffering. Patience and suffering is only possible because we know that God has good purposes, even in our suffering. 
And as James says, we can look to the future. James points to how Jesus is coming back to end all suffering, to right all wrongs, and to judge all who oppress and persecute God's people. It's because of this certainty of judgment at Christ's return that James can call his readers and us to be patient. See, we don't need to take matters into our own hands. We shouldn't lose hope or think that God has forgotten us. Rather, we should patiently endure, knowing a day is coming when all of this will be made right. I know many of you are probably in the midst of suffering right now. Maybe you're seeing rifts form in your family. You've seen what you thought were solid friendships fall apart. Maybe illness has taken some of your loved ones. You might be going through mental health battles, feeling like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. You feel like there's no hope and things will never get better. Tonight, James is telling you that you cannot lose hope. His call is shockingly straightforward. He doesn't deny that what you're going through is hard. Rather, he simply says, be patient. Establish your heart because Jesus could come back at any moment. Now, before you think James is being unrealistic and doesn't understand what you're going through, remember what he and those he was writing to had experienced. James had seen people close to him brutally persecuted for their faith. He had seen people murdered simply because they believed in Jesus. He had seen his brothers and sisters beaten and have their possessions and homes taken from them and even be cast out of society because of their stance for righteousness. The most prime example of all, of course, is James seeing his very brother Jesus die at the hands of wicked men for righteousness sake. He witnessed Jesus patiently endure great suffering, humiliation, and finally a brutally painful death. Remember, James wasn't even a believer until after Jesus's resurrection, which was the single act that changed all of history and it changed James's life too. See, just as Jesus's death and resurrection gives new meaning to the suffering that he endured, James points to Jesus's resurrection as a reason for believers to have hope in suffering. Jesus suffered and died as a perfectly innocent man, truly the only truly innocent person to ever die. For those watching him die a brutal death on the cross, it all seemed pointless. It seemed like God's plan to rescue his people had failed. Yet at his glorious resurrection and glorification, all his suffering and his death began to make sense. Suddenly it became clear that this was not a failure of God's plan, but it was rather God's very plan to redeem his people through the suffering and death of his son in their place. In the same way, Jesus's return to right all wrongs and judge the world will put our own suffering in perspective. Not only will suffering end when he personally comes to wipe away every tear, but all of our suffering will make sense in eternity when we recognize God's good purposes behind every moment of our lives. With that said, I need to be very clear here. This is good news for believers. For those of you who are here tonight who have not yet trusted in Jesus, I wanna again say, I'm thankful, so thankful that you're here and considering these things. But if you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus 
If you haven't turned away from your sin and trusted in his perfect life, his work on the cross, taking the punishment for your sins and his victorious resurrection, then this is not yet good news for you personally. Look it back at how James speaks of the return of Jesus in verse nine there. He says, the judge is standing at the door. If we're trying to stand before this judge on our own, hoping that our good deeds outweigh the bad on the day of judgment, we will be in for a rude awakening. This judge does not judge on a curve. He demands absolute perfection. Yet this judge who is waiting at the door is the same one who suffered and died. So that if you trust in him, he will count his perfection as your perfection. So while his return is only good news for those who trusted in him, he is inviting everyone here tonight to freely come to him, to be forgiven and have the confidence to stand in that day. So what's holding you back from accepting that gift tonight? I hope you can also see how this final section is preparing us to be God's people on his mission. Because we can only be about the glorious task of making Christ known to those around us to the ends of the earth if we have an eternal perspective that can remain patient in the face of suffering. It's only possible if we establish our hearts and look to the example of those who have gone before us, just like James points to. And I wanna close us with a story that ties this all together. It's a story of a person who saw his life in light of Jesus's present and future reign, who submitted his future to the one who holds the future. It's a man who leveraged his life and his finances for Jesus's kingdom and who is patient in the face of suffering. Now, his name is John Vinson. You probably haven't heard of him, but he was a missionary who grew in, up in Sherman, Texas, just outside of Dallas and served in Northern China. And in 1931, John was visiting some believers in a village when the area was swarmed by 600 bandits. He was taken hostage with 150 others and was offered freedom if he would just write a letter to the commander of the government forces telling them to withdraw. Vincent refused unless all the hostages were released, not just him, which the bandits rejected. A Chinese girl who witnessed the events and escaped later said that as his captors prepared to murder him, they were holding a gun to his head and asking him, are you afraid? Vincent said, no, I'm not afraid. If you kill me, I will go straight to heaven. Reflecting on these events, a fellow missionary named Evelyn Hamilton wrote this poem. And I'm gonna try and keep it together. Uh, last week, I read this poem three times in one day and two out of three, I cried. And I'm not a crier, okay? So I'll try and keep it together, but no guarantees. It goes like this. Afraid of what? To feel the spirit's glad release, to pass from pain to perfect peace, the strife and strain of life to cease. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face, to hear his welcome and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart, brief darkness, light, 
O heaven's art, a wound of his counterpart. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To enter into heaven's rest and yet to serve the master blessed from service good to service best? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not. Baptize with blood a stony plot till souls shall blossom from that spot. Afraid of that? See, the, the beautiful part of this story is that the death of men and women, like John Vincent, did just what this poem says. They baptized with blood a stony plot and souls blossomed from that spot. There are now churches across China that are making disciples and multiplying without any outside help. Jesus is being worshiped now, 90 years later, in places where he had never been named because of the lives and deaths of people like John Vincent. How glorious is that? I long to view my life through these eternal lenses. Don't you? If our hearts truly take hold of God's current and coming kingdom reign, we should live as people submitted to God's rule over our very lives, over our finances, and over our suffering. If we see our lives in light of these cosmic realities, we are completely freed up for God's mission in the world. And I'm gonna lead us to, to pray that this would be true of us. But as I do that, um, if you need prayer or you want to talk with someone as you respond to this, please don't hesitate to go to that table in the back. There are people who would love to talk to you more about what it means to follow this Jesus, how you might respond to what we've heard tonight. Would you join me in, in praying? Father, we are truly humbled uh, by the incredible realities that we just heard. That you, the, the God of all the universe who controls everything, would also send your son to the earth to take on flesh, to live the life that we have failed to live, a perfect life and die on the cross for our sins and then rise from the grave so that you would reconcile sinful people, enemies like us to you, simply through faith. Lord, help us, help me to not let be, that truth just become another set of facts that we know or something that doesn't stir our hearts, but help us to recognize the glory of that truth. And not only that, Lord, that you are sending your son back to the earth to return in judgment. And that is good news if we have trusted in you because that judgment brings healing and restoration in all of our suffering. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us to live in light of that reality. Help us to see our lives through eternal lenses, to not be uh, building lives of self-indulgent luxury in order to create comfort for ourselves, but to rather leverage the blessings that you have given us to live for you and to see your name worshiped in places where it is not. 
Lord, help us to be like John Vincent, to be willing to even sacrifice our lives if necessary for your glory so that more people might come to know you, that Jesus might get the worship that he deserves from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Lord, we cry out, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive worth, to receive honor and glory not just from us, not just from Redeemer Church or Lubbock or America, but from every tribe, tongue and nation on the face of the earth. Help us Lord to live in light of that. We thank you for who you are and that you call us into this mission by grace. You allow us to join you in that mission. Help us to live to that end. I pray in Jesus name, amen.